Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Bob Weathers. Very happy to be with you here today. And Odie Martinez, glad to be here as well. It's nice to have you back, Odie. It's great to, to be with all of you. Just by way of quick review, uh, it'll kind of set a context for our conversation today. Um, I, I'm a professor of clinical psychology at California Southern University, located here in Orange County. And I also do recovery coaching, working for Beginnings Treatment Centers, who are the sponsors of our uh, ongoing podcast series here at Ask an Addiction Specialist. I mentioned both of those because those kind of plot me uh, that I'll be, our discussions here uh, in, in, in our series focus on a psychological take. That's my background. Uh, and it's uh, with a uh, kind of a laser beam focus on addiction and recovery. And so I'm coming at addiction recovery. There's many different perspectives. You can approach addiction recovery from an exclusively spiritual perspective or an exclusively biological perspective or even an exclusively cultural perspective. I'm coming in with uh, primarily a psychological bias, and you'll see that. Um, we're, we're concluding, we're wrapping up uh, a series, a lengthy series here, where we've examined every possible angle on the phenomenon of shame and how that manifests both in addiction and also crops up in recovery. And uh, we've, uh, the, the, the nomenclature we've used is we're focusing on unshaming. I'll say more about that in a minute. But before I go any further, let me invite you to share questions, dialogue with us today as we're, as we're dialoguing. Um, we have Austin Armstrong, our producer in the, in, the, in the studio here, handling multiple hats today, and he'll be happy to field your questions and to forward those to Odie and myself. Yes. So I uh, really appreciate you doing that. Also appreciate uh, you sharing the good news of this broadcast with others. If you have friends that might be available to see it now, forward the link to them so they can join us here at Ask an Addiction Specialist. Also for you to know is that we have all of our... Uh, podcasts from nearly a year now archived in various locations. YouTube, um, if you go to Beginnings Treatment Centers, there's a whole section there of podcasts. And underneath that is underneath that umbrella are all of our podcasts here at Ask Addiction Specialists. So um, invite you to, to not only check those out yourself if you haven't been able to attend previous meetings, as well as to share uh, with friends. It's always helpful to get the good word out. So thank you. Just uh, for the context, last week we talked about surprising shame with love, and we talked about the, uh, the impact of shame on our being able to receive love. We also talked about the healing impact of love and connection on, on our shame. In fact, I just came from a, a group today uh, uh, working with the men uh, in the treatment center, uh, and uh, one of them shared a quote from Johannes Hari uh, that you, you, you may have seen his TED talk online, where he says, connection is the opposite of addiction. Mm. And uh, I really like that is, is that, is that connection is the antidote to addiction. And so that's really what we talked about last week is that mm -hmm. connection, love is the antidote to addiction and is certainly the antidote to shame. And we use that image of surprise as being taken from above, if you mm -hmm. recall that. So that's what we discussed last week. And today, which is in some ways a final uh, uh, wrapping up of many of the key topics we've talked about so far. Uh, the title of our presentation today is Imagine a World Without Shame. 
I actually imagined in coming up with this title, the song by John Lennon. <laughs> My daughter Amanda used to be able to play that on piano, and I was thinking of Imagine a World Without Shame. And so we'll be looking at that topic in the context of an entire series, as I suggested earlier, that I've come to call Unshaming. I actually have a book that I'm completing right now, and that is the primary title of the book, is Unshaming. So the idea that shame is an important topic for us to discuss, we'll be looking at why that's important today, and that unshaming or reducing, managing, treating, eradicating shame uh, is uh, cash in the bank in terms of developing a solid foundation for recovery and for health. So we've been talking about unshaming is essential to recovery from addiction to alcohol and other drugs. I want to cite a few statistics today um, uh, to kind of set the tone for uh, our talking about shame and what to do about shame. First of all, um, we may have discussed this before, but I want to reiterate it if we have, uh, that one of four out of four adults in America right now is addicted to alcohol, nicotine, or other drugs. Mm. And every time I cite that statistic, every time I come across that, I'm shocked by that. It, the, the prevalence of addiction to substance, 25% of us are addicted to substance in mm. this country, uh, is very humbling to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there's another statistic, which I don't have a PowerPoint slide for, is that out of those that are addicted, only 10% get treated. Mm-hmm. And so you can do the math on that. I can't do it. But if 25% of us, if one out of four of us are addicted, only one out of 10 of those that are addicted get treatment. So that's a, that's a startling conclusion. And in light of the opioid uh, epidemic, as well as just addiction generally, you can begin to get a sense of the, the scope of mm-hmm. addiction as a problem. Um, we have discussed here, and Odie, you've been really open to discussing uh, uh, a whole other category of addictions. If, if one out of four of us are addicted to substance, mm-hmm. it turns out that nine out of ten of us will actually assert in questionnaires that we have at least one current behavioral addiction mm-hmm. on top of, in addition to, uh, or in place of, uh, substance addiction. Yeah. They're not mutually exclusive, but that means that nine out of ten American adults endorse that they are uh, currently addicted to some behavior. And we've included conversations here, addictions uh, to everything from eating, to gambling, to sex, to uh, work. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, the list is, is nearly endless. And, and as we've talked about it, when we talk about addiction this way, it makes it a human problem. Mm-hmm. It's not just those people that are addicted. Substance addiction is one out of four behavioral addiction. I mentioned this statistic today and somebody in the group said, if 90% of people say they're addicted, what about the other 10%? (laughs) And and what was implied in that is those people probably aren't clear about the question. (laughs) Uh, uh, And it does open up where we're going to go next. And I want to talk about attitudes about addiction generally. Another statistic that came out of another recent uh, survey or research is the next slide. Two-thirds of us Americans uh, acknowledge that we have a family member who is currently addicted to substance. Mm. Two out of three of the respondents in a nationwide survey said we have at least one family member who's uh, currently addicted to alcohol, nicotine, or other drugs. The next slide is the more startling statistic. In that same study, when the question was asked, who would you talk to about the addiction, two-thirds of respondents said they would not talk to anybody outside the family about the addiction. Mm. And that really then exposes the privacy or the sense of 
of secrecy that we have around our addictions, whether they're to substance or to, to substance. Yeah. And no, Odie, you know about that, and I certainly have lived this too, um, is that, that there's a tremendous amount of stigma. In fact, the next slide is indicative of one, one example of the, the stigma that we have, which is basically a negative societal judgment, right. is that um, in psychology, in psychiatry, in medicine, there's a manual called the DSM. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it includes every, th every version of anxiety, every possible variation on depression, any other sources of psychological suffering, from thought disorders to various developmental disorders, et cetera. They're all included, and I hold it up because it's this thick with very fine print. And uh, uh, at Johns Hopkins University back in Maryland, there was a study done, and that of all the diagnoses that are listed in that manual, and there are scores and scores and scores of diagnoses in the DSM, that the, the single diagnosis that has the most negative judgment or societal stigma is, well, I've set it up, is predictably is addiction. Mm -hmm. It's referred to in the DSM as substance use disorders, and they have the most uh, negative, um, the most negative attitudes and judgment towards those of all the, all the disorders. Yeah. Owing to your exposure to addiction and owing mm -hmm. to my exposure to addiction, the next slide is not something that's theoretical for OD or me, namely, shame. And that's been the subject of our uh, lengthy analysis uh, uh, over the last uh, many weeks and actually over the last several months. One thing we know for sure is that shame is the most stressful human emotion. Mm -hmm. And how do we know that? There was a, a meta-analysis done at Harvard University looking at 200 different studies that looked at emotions that result in the elevation of our stress hormones, and mm. specifically cortisol. Cortisol and adrenaline are the most familiar stress hormones in our bodies. This study was looking at what kicks up the highest cortisol. Mm. Basically, when my cortisol is kicked up or your cortisol is kicked up, we experience ourselves being stressed out. Mm. And what they found was that the highest cortisol uh, is, uh, uh, is, is kicked up via shame. Mm. They defined shame this way in the study. Shame has two different faces, as we've talked about it. One is that if I have, if there's a threat to my social acceptance, in other words, I'm going to be kicked out of my reference group, my loved ones especially, mm -hmm. that's going to kick up my cortisol. Right. And the flip side of that is that there will also be a threat to my self-esteem. Yep. And in fact, if you think about this, if I'm kicked out of my group, mm -hmm. that's going to have a major impact on my, how I feel about myself. That combination of threats to social acceptance, threats to self-esteem, um, by any other definition, that's shame. Mm. Those are associated with the highest elevation of cortisol, which just means that's the most stressful for us. Yeah. How are we doing so far? Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. Good. The relevance of this conversation about stress to addiction and recovery is direct and major. The number one trigger for relapse is stress. And we've just identified that the most stressful emotion is shame. Mm. And so there's a direct road there between Stress as a trigger for relapse and shame is the most stressful emotion, which is to say shame would be our most significant pothole on the way to successful recovery. Mm -hmm. Let me talk a little bit about, uh, we're going to skip a couple slides here. Let me talk a little bit about um, triggers for, for, uh, uh, for relapse. If the number one trigger for relapse is, is uh, stress and the most stressful emotion is shame, the way it goes, and we've discussed this in previous uh, podcasts in some detail, is that if I have an internal trigger of stress inside mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's 
been connected in my mind to external access of ways of medicating that, mm -hmm. now I'm speaking specifically about substance addiction, it would apply to behavioral addictions as well, it stands to reason that you create a circuit in the brain, internal stress leads to turning to external cues or external resources to self-medicate, basically to eliminate or at least reduce the stress, right. and there you get the cycle. Mm -hmm. The way this goes in the brain is this, is that high cortisol is kicked up, this is the next slide, high cortisol is kicked up. I want to reduce that. Mm -hmm. I find something that will elevate my, my dopamine mm. uh, release in my brain. Right. Dopamine is manifested, among other things, as a sense of relief or pleasure. Mm. And so it effectively quashes my, my, my stress, my cortisol. Mm -hmm. And then the brain has a little tricky little thing that it does is that it seals that in our brains, Odie. And so it remembers that, and the substance involved in that, in the brain, as a neurotransmitter, is glutamate. Mm. And so... Cortisol is my trigger. It's an internal stressor. I've learned that if I turn to this addictive behavior or this addictive substance, that it will immediately address my stress. That's associated with the release of dopamine. And the brain concretely stamps that into memory via glutamate. Mm, okay. So cortisol leads to do dopamine, leads to glutamate. This is something that you want to share with all your friends because they'll all be really happy with this information. No. I, I at least wanted to, to uh, uh, draw it into the brain to give you an idea. And I'll tell you one of the values that we're talking about in terms of brain chemistry is that we're talking about something universal. I've been yeah. addicted to substance. You've been addicted to behaviors. Yeah. I've also been addicted to behaviors. And addiction is addiction is addiction. Mm. So whether I'm addicted to a certain behavior or I'm addicted to a certain substance, in the brain, this sequence I just talked about is in common. Mm -hmm. And if 90% of us are addicted mm -hmm. to behaviors, uh, behavioral addictions, what are sometimes called process addictions, it's to suggest that it's human to be addicted. Mm -hmm. And this process that I just talked about, the dopamine, excuse me, the elevated cortisol leads to finding dopamine, leads to glutamate, leads to repeating that cycle, mm -hmm. rinse and repeat, right. is that that's eminently human. So it gives me a, um, a it makes it much more difficult for me to be okay judging you. Okay. Because if I judge you, I'm basically judging myself because we're human beings in this and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so we just talked about this earlier. There's a lot of secrecy, a lot of stigma mm -hmm. about addiction in our, in our society. The irony is that we all know addiction intimately, yeah. not only in our family members, but also within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so this process, if we can understand it, even understand it in terms of the, the biological explanation, there's a way that we can kind of externalize it and hold it slightly at a distance and go, that's addiction which is to say, that's not Odie, mm -hmm. that's not Bob. That's what addiction does to Odie, that's what addiction does to Bob. In fact, that's what addiction does to every human brain. Mm -hmm. So it gives us a little bit of a leg up in terms of being able to, at least for ourselves, not stigmatize ourselves, not mm -hmm. judge ourselves. Yeah, that's uh, two things about what you've mentioned so far. So please, please, yeah. The first thing being that, like, the first time that uh, I pretty much I think it was maybe half a year or something of sobriety, so to speak, for the behavior uh, addiction that I had. I was, uh, I wanted to share it on on Facebook, not necessarily to be like, hey, look at me, mm -hmm. but more like to throw it out there so if anybody that I know Good for in you. my circle of friends yeah. would yeah. feel free to reach out. And I even left yeah. that in the in the post that, mm -hmm. I, that I put and, um, and I hesitated at first because I have my family yeah. 
on Facebook, and they had no idea either of anything that went on uh, with my behavior, but I did it anyways, you know, and uh, uh, they never asked about it, but, uh, you know, it's out, <laughs> it's out there. So if they want to ask me about it, then we can talk about it. Um, and then the second thing, uh, the dopamine and the glutamate, how the glutamate, is, am I saying that right? Glutamate? Mm -hmm. It stamps mm -hmm. the, the behavior. It locks it into memory, yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. Austin and I actually did a, a video um, this is Austin over here. He's yeah. off camera, but we're really looking at you, Austin. <laughs> we love you, brother. <laughs> I think almost a month ago, and we and the topic was uh, how porn affects your brain. Yes, and yeah. we touched upon this. Oh, subject. okay, okay, okay. And the research that that I did for the video. Yes. Uh, they also mentioned in an article uh, how people are actually um, not addicted, but this is this explains binging on your favorite. Uh, Netflix ep uh -huh. episodes, mm -hmm. like or a show, mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. how yes. that's a thing now. Binging yes. is a yes. thing, yes. and yeah, it's, uh, it's they very, brought this up. So. Yeah, it's very interesting. If we hook up my brain, if I'm addicted to porn and you're addicted to Netflix, and Austin is addicted to alcohol or whatever, we just it doesn't really matter. We can shift it around. I'll be addicted to whatever you guys. In fact, I have probably been. Is that if we shift that around, and if we go up the road to UCLA and they hook up our brains to a functional mm -hmm. Uh, brain scan, and as our brain is in, in interaction and we're exposed to whatever it is, the addiction, Netflix, okay, mm -hmm. is that your brain, in terms of the, the actively addictive brain, will look exactly like my brain in active mm -hmm. addiction, will look exactly like Austin's in active addiction. And so that's what I mean when I say addiction equals addiction equals addiction. Right. Now, I readily admit, in fact, this work has also been done up at UCLA in the medical school, is that different uh, addictive stimuli, including different substances, have different amounts of release of dopamine mm. uh, in terms of the, the, the pleasurable uh, effects of dopamine, Got the it. unexpectedly pleasurable effects to the brain. Mm -hmm. But it's the same process, and so you yeah. cannot tell, just looking at the brain circuitry involved, who's doing what, who's addicted mm -hmm. to what, because wow. addiction really equals addiction. Mm -hmm. So I think it my view of that was it, is it levels the playing field, is that we're in this together, yeah. we're in this together. And so as we'll be moving in a few minutes, we'll be moving towards solutions together, and there's really no standpoint for me to judge you or vice versa, and I feel like that's a really important piece. Yeah. One of the perverse things, thank you, thank you for bringing that yeah, in, because it's absolutely relevant. I wanna come back to what you what you shared earlier too, Odie, I really respect this about your, uh, uh, wanting to put up on Facebook your own experience mm -hmm. in hopes of uh, encouraging others to feel safe yeah. because you're effectively breaking down the barriers then mm -hmm. to our mm -hmm. discussing this. And I really respect that. And uh, it can be a real adjustment. It can be a really, it takes a lot of courage to do that, especially with family and those that love us, mm -hmm. maybe being kind of blown out of the water or shocked. Yeah. But at least what it does is it opens up conversations. It's been my experience now in six years of, of um, committed recovery mm -hmm. is that it's been six years of my getting a little bit more brave, a little bit more courageous <laughs> to share this. I was not this way six years ago. In mm -hmm. fact, I was just the opposite. I wanted to continue to hide it. And I'm much more open to it right now. And you are too. And I really yeah. respect that because it opens up then the doors for healing. Because if, yeah. if what I said earlier, the opposite of addiction is connection then you're providing for the possibility for connection, whether mm. it's virtual on Facebook or here are talking right now or you talking directly to friends and so on. Total respect for that. Thank you. Total respect Likewise. for that. How are we doing, Austin? We're doing okay. He says thumbs up, so we'll keep going, okay? <laughs> 
I think it's implied in what we were just talking about around secrecy and about stigma and what Odie's doing, which is going upstream, going up against that, is an active addiction, the poor get poorer. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that there's a vicious cycle in active addiction. Yeah, there we go. There's a vicious cycle in active addiction uh, that, uh, that anybody that's been addicted knows how this goes. And it goes, here's the math, the next slide is in active addiction, I already start off secretive and ashamed of what I'm doing, whether it's substance or behavior. I'm not broadcasting. I'm not putting it on Facebook. Right. I'm not broadcasting my addiction, at least when I'm in active addiction. And ironically, but predictably, my, my being ashamed of what I'm doing makes me more inclined to want to self-medicate. Hmm to adjust my body's biology, to adjust my emotions, and I can find that. In fact, when I ask a group of young men, like today, in early recovery from addiction, what they do to address, or what do they do as an antidote to, to, to shame, mm -hmm. everyone will raise their hand and say, I use, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I use my addiction, I use my addiction. And so there is temporary relief from that. Yeah temporary relief from the angst or the, the unpleasantness of shame in the addictive behavior. Then the irony, and this is the twist as it comes back around again, is now I only thought I was ashamed. Mm. Now I'm even further ashamed. My solution to my shame has made me further ashamed. And there you get very much this kind of a sense of a spiral, a, a, a downward spiral. Right. So that begs the next question, my friend, and that is what's to be done? What's to be done? We've talked about this in various ways, but I think I want to talk today about a distinction that's an important distinction. I want to talk about it on a personal level. I also want to talk about it maybe on a more of a social level as well. It's the distinction we've made between toxic shame and rightful guilt. So we have a few slides here to summarize what we've talked about before. If you've viewed previous episodes of our podcast, you'll be familiar with these, but I'm going to be leading this in a certain direction here today. So just by way of review, in fact, we just talked about this in the group today. Guilt makes me feel bad for what I've done. Mm -hmm. Shame takes it to the next level, and it, it not only makes me feel bad about what I've done, it makes me feel bad about me for having done it. Mm -hmm. And so it's not so much that I've done something bad that I feel bad about, that would be guilt. It's I am something bad. Mm -hmm. And I even use the word something there rather than someone to indicate how it is that in shame, I become a thing to myself, mm -hmm. a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not even a human anymore. It's like I'm a monster. I'm a thing. I'm an it. And so we it ourselves this way. And that's really what shame does. Mm -hmm. <coughs> it removes your soul, your spirit from who you are yeah. and turns you into just a bad thing. Had somebody asked me today in the group, he said, Dr. Bob, don't we want to hang on to, to the, bad, the, the, the bad feelings? And so it led us to a discussion, and it's the next slide, which is, I feel like that shame, and we've talked about this here, shame is, is uh, in, in my way of viewing it, my way of talking about it here, is, is only ever toxic. Mm -hmm. But it's not to say that you throw out feeling bad. So if I put my hand on a burner, I want feedback from the burner to move fast for me to remove my hand. I feel like guilt's like that. Guilt gets me to remove my hand from the burner. Mm -hmm. Guilt gets me to look at my behavior. Mm -hmm. Guilt motivates me. Yeah. 
And uh, if, if we understand this from the brain perspective, guilt is a frontal lobe phenomenon, which is just to say it helps us to navigate and to execute uh, action, to make change, to make our amends and make them real. We've talked here about cheap grace. Mm -hmm. I can step on your foot and say, so sorry about that. But if I don't feel any guilt, I'll step on it again and say the same daggum thing. And so it doesn't do any good. On the other hand, if I step on your foot and feel bad about it, and which I should, mm -hmm. I'm likely to apologize to you. I'm sorry, Odie, and likely not to repeat that. I'll change that behavior. Mm -hmm. If we push that out there, what happens in shame? If I step on your foot in shame, I am bad. How could I be so clumsy? I'm just awful. Mm -hmm. And the irony is I'll look like to you oftentimes like I don't care. Mm -hmm. I can't possibly make myself vulnerable to having made a mistake, so I hide it so you're not happy about it. Mm -hmm. Bob doesn't seem to care. And the irony also is that the shame paralyzes me. I'm not even likely to change my behavior so I could actually step on your foot again. Owing to shame doesn't lead to change. Mm -hmm. Shame stops us, stops mm -hmm. us cold. Yeah. In the brain, it goes like this. We, if you think about the fight, flight, or freeze mechanism in the brain, that's the emotional center of the brain. It's our survival. It helps us to flee when there's something risky. Mm -hmm. uh, it helps us to fight if we're able to fight. And if we can't do either one of those things, it just freezes us. Think of a possum. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> uh, uh, our, the way of understanding this from a brain perspective is that shame, which is a freeze response, shame doesn't allow me access to my frontal lobes. My frontal lobes are how I make decisions. They're also the seat of my moral decision-making. Mm. If you knock out my frontal lobes, it's very hard for me to be a moral, dis, uh, a moral creature because right. I don't have access to that. Well, shame doesn't, doesn't access the frontal lobes. It's actually referred to as hypofrontal. It's underneath the frontal lobes. Mm. And so you can see where toxic shame is indeed toxic. It stops us in its tracks, and I won't stop hurting you. Mm. Okay. Does that make sense so yeah. far? makes perfect sense. The next slide is going to require some explanation. The priority in therapy, let's see that slide is the next, oh, back, 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 there, thank you. <laughs> okay, the next slide. Can we just please draw attention to what Austin is doing today? <laughs> he is juggling, I don't know how many, but he's not juggling balls. He's juggling computer programs. He's juggling typewriter keys. He's juggling me. <laughs> Thank you, Austin, for all you're doing. Yeah, right on, right on. Um, the treatment priority, looking at this from a clinical perspective, and this is a psychology term, is to address or correct the fundamental attribution error. Mm -hmm. And let me just ask you a question. So yeah. I'm not assuming that you've read about the fundamental attribution error. If you have, I'd be very surprised. <laughs> But what does the word attribution bring to mind? Does that bring anything to mind? Just what is it to attribute something? Any thought about that? To add. That's the only thing that comes to mind. To yeah. add. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. When we attribute something, if, if you, if I do something, what mm -hmm. you add to what I've done is an attribution. Mm -hmm. And all I mean by that is that you attribute something to me for having done that. Mm -hmm. If I step on your foot, you could attribute that to my being hopelessly clumsy. Mm. You could attribute that to my being slightly distracted momentarily. Those are two very different attributions. Mm. One is that Bob is hopelessly clumsy. There's really, I just want to stay away from him. Yeah. There's no, no telling what he's going to step on. <laughs> the other is that Bob was distracted and he did that, which is an accident. First of mm. all, he'll probably apologize. Secondly, it doesn't happen that often, so I'm not going to sweat it. Mm. And so the attribution we make really matters. Yeah. Now, psychology talks about the fundamental attribution error, and that's really what we're talking about, which is that if you are addicted to a behavior or a substance, or if I'm addicted to a behavior or a substance, 
it makes a whole bunch of difference from a psychological perspective to attribute that to something broken about you, mm. which is really beyond hope. You know what, Odie? We're done with you. God's done with you. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's ridiculous yeah. to imagine that. But we do that all the time. We do that to ourselves, which mm. is the worst. That really is shame yeah. in perfect definition, is that there's no hope for me, including <laughs> God. I'm just abandoned yeah. to being yeah. a hopeless case. And we do that to one another. You'll see somebody's behavior and you'll judge them as something being broken about them versus looking at the situation. And mm -hmm. in your case around addiction and in my case around addiction, there's actually leverage to move that. In other words, I'm not a hopeless case. I need to address my addiction, but my addiction doesn't define me. Mm. I don't see you through the lens of addiction. <laughs> I see you as you are. Mm. I see you as Odie Martinez with a soul and a spirit yeah. that doesn't want to be doing this to yourself or to others. And hopefully you see me the same way. Mm. It's a very different attribution. One, it would be, to put this in Christian terms, it would be to attribute it to sin. Mm. And sin comes from the Greek root hamartia, which just means to be off the mark. Mm. It's like an archery image. Right. If you're off the mark, you're off the mark. That doesn't mean that you should never pick up a bow. Mm, <laughs> it just yeah. means you're off the mark. Yeah. Very different, very yeah. different attribution. So the one, there's hope because you can get back on the mark if you're off the mark. Yeah. But if you should never pick up a bow, that's another story mm. altogether. Yeah. So a good bit of the emphasis, it seems like to me, in, in both therapy for those that have struggled with addiction, as well as uh, in, in uh, self-help support groups mm. like AA, NA, other 12-step support groups, and those that are not 12-step support groups, Smart Recovery, Refuge Recovery. There are any number of organizations that provide uh, a way to talk about your addiction that does not equate your addiction with you being a bad person. Mm -hmm. You know this from your own experience, yeah. and I know it from mine as well. I should so mention right. Celebrate Recovery is another resource where you yeah. actually are in a situation with other people that oftentimes struggle with the same addictive behaviors that you do, and you're talking about it openly with each other, and there's no judgment. Yeah. That is grace. Yeah. That is grace. Good that stuff. is grace. Yeah. This uh, reminds me of, uh, I think it was last night, but. Um, my wife did something really, it was cute. Uh, so we, she, I heard her watching a, a TED Talk, and the TED Talk was about uh, winning words or something like that. And the lady was talking about how uh, she would use certain words about herself during certain situations, but she realized that it wasn't working for her, so mm -hmm. she would switch out those words for different words. And one of the words was, uh, that's not like me. Whenever she would make a mistake, mm. she switched it mm. to, that's not like me. And what my wife did yesterday, I think it was, she dropped something in the kitchen and she said, I don't know why I'm so clumsy. And then uh. she's like, that's not like me. Ah. And so it was funny because <laughs> she, she watched the video and, you know, she kind of yeah. adapted what, she took what the lady was saying to heart, which I I applauded her for it because yeah. it was. I think it's valuable to yeah. to switch those words because she she tends to do that sometimes where she'll say it out loud like, "Oh, why am I so clumsy today?" Yeah. Or yeah. "I don't know why yeah. I'm so nervous." This and that. It's like, no, it's you know, yeah. it's just. Yeah, just what a, a difference of, it makes. Yeah, What's cool about your yourself. wife is she actually speaks it out yeah. because most of us don't do that, but I will guarantee you that, that most of us do that internally. Mm. So whether I speak it out or not, we have, psychology calls it self-talk. We have self-talk, and by self-talk, it doesn't mean that we go around saying it, except right. for your wife. Yeah. <laughs> well, not but, in public, but yeah. like when we're by ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> I, I got you, I got you. But we have that going on implicitly all the time. We have conversations going on inside. Mm. In fact, you remind me, there's what, there's what um, 
brain scientists call the default mode network. Mm -hmm. Our brains default when we're not involved in a task. Mm -hmm. If you and I weren't doing this right now, we're just sitting here daydreaming, our brains will default to that self-talk. Mm. Most of what we default to is what they call self-referential. It's referring to myself and it can go into some pretty dark places and mm -hmm. it can be very automatic. And so what your wife is making explicit, what was it, how can I be so clumsy? Something, yeah. something yeah, like yeah. that. When we talk about the fundamental attribution error is to say that it's fundamental because it's fundamental to us as humans mm. and we tend to default to that yep. so you actually have to work hard like your wife did thank goodness for the ted talk how yeah, timely exactly. <laughs> is that the ted talk is suggesting going upstream against that and rather than doing what comes most naturally mm -hmm. and most destructively which is the negative or the shaming self-talk what would it be to change that and the amazing thing about it is that sometimes we have to just try it until mm -hmm. we begin to feel differently yeah. it'd be very curious to ask your wife maybe you did how did it feel to actually shift that to that's not me i'll ask her yeah i didn't ask her yeah but. yeah I love the fact that it's as practical as that, and I don't yeah. think there's a person in our audience today that wouldn't be able to identify that. In fact, we have somebody who's just written in a question here. Let's check this out. Aside from individuals doing unshaming inner work, I'm trying to imagine how institutions might incorporate unshaming. I don't have any answers, but wonder if you do. You know what? This person must have read my notes because I'm going to get to that. <laughs> I'm going to get to that. I plan to address that in about four slides. If you'll hang on, we'll come back to this, looking at what organizations and institutions will do. It's really implied in today's, uh, uh, the title for today's topic, Imagine a World Without Shame. Imagine Odie and Bob and your wife without shame. That's an amazing thing to imagine. But what would it be like for our institutions, our organizations, our clubs, our churches, our, our, our work environments mm -hmm. to be the, the, themselves to be unshaming. So I want to talk more about that in just a minute. Someone else has written in a comment here. Let me see if I can uh, read this one here. I once had a psychiatrist who said if he could eradicate guilt and shame from the world, he could release most of his patients. That was a very wise psychiatrist, I would agree. <laughs> this was back in the early 70s when our mental hospitals were full of people who would never be in one now. He says this is before Thatcher. Um, I think that's also implied in where I want to go with this is, is I'm going to be quoting Albert Einstein in a slide or two, and I want to come back to this. I'll tell you what, let me work into answering. Both of these are related to me. Is, is what can we do to do to change institutions? And it is true if we could eradicate, I'm gonna focus on shame here because I don't really wanna eradicate guilt. In this way of understanding it, guilt is, this is, we're talking, we're making a distinction between rightful guilt. You don't want your wife dropping things in the kitchen just right and left, <laughs> she's not gonna do that. But, so you want her to not feel okay about that, I doubt mm -hmm. that she did. But you don't want her to go into a sinkhole, which would be toxic shame. So mm -hmm. rightful guilt in place of toxic shame. And what would it be like to have that be our daily diet? That's one of the questions. Well, we've already made the point that shame paralyzes. The next slide, the red alert slide. I want to say what happens when we move into shame. And we've not discussed it quite this way before, but see if you can identify this in your own experience, Odie. Mm -hmm. I call it the red alert mode. We go into a red alert mode. And what is that red alert mode? The first piece is that we'll move on the defense, mm. is that if I step on your foot or if I drop something in your kitchen, if I'm your wife, uh, <laughs> I'll want to minimize it or even deny it. It wasn't mm. my fault. I didn't do it. Uh, and, and, and so if somebody, if somebody says, you know, you stepped on my foot, 
will uh, will will argue that we do, will deny it. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't work, then we resort to strategy number two: is we'll go on the offensive, mm -hmm. and they'll say, "Well, you put your foot there," <laughs> <laughs> or somebody didn't screw on the lid of the jar, yeah. or you know, there's all kinds of ways that we do that. And so shame will move us out of a rightful relationship to what we can correct and actually absent ourselves of responsibility. And I can do that by either escaping in terms of defensiveness, or if, if worse comes to worse, I can just attack you. Mm. I can turn it on you. And we've, we've all been on the receiving end of that, I have no doubt, and we've all probably been on the giving end of that. And so it seems to me that it's fundamental that we get down underneath whatever we drop, whatever feet we step on, and look at these fundamental attitudes. I want to bring up the next slide, which is Albert Einstein. This will be a quote that, that you all may be, may be familiar with. He said, you, we cannot solve the problems with, you know, it's, I have a longer quote in my mind, so I have to read this because this is an abbreviated version. <laughs> we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. There's variations on that quote, but you get the basic drift. We cannot solve our problems with the same kind of thinking that spawned our problems. And I want to apply this, and he wasn't speaking this in this particular way, but we're going to apply it. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about this in the context of recovery. Mm -hmm. Is that if I seek recovery from addiction, whether it's to substance or other behaviors, and if part of the root of my addictive behaviors is wanting to, to medicate shame, mm -hmm. If I don't address shame, then guess what? Mm. I stay in the loop. I stay right. in the loop of that. So back to Einstein. If I want to solve a problem, which is addiction, and use the same kind of thinking that gave birth to the addiction, namely shame, you can see the dead end there. Mm. We've got ourselves in a cul-de-sac. We're not going to be able to make it around the corner here. The good news, the next slide, the good news is that there's hope. And that's really implied in all that you and I have been talking about. Yeah. And in the language of this series of, of uh, podcasts, uh, uh, that good news is that we can learn to reduce shame. We can learn to unshame. Now I want to address the two questions more specifically in the next uh, uh, few slides. Again, our topic for today is imagine a world without shame. I'd like to give you two examples of organizations. Uh, one's a national organization, one's a regional organization. And I've, I've been invited into conversation with both of these organizations just in the last couple of months. They're not the only organizations, but there are two that I'm really pleased and really uh, and, and surprised by what they're doing. Pleased to be invited into conversation with them. The first organization is the next slide, and it's the American Pharmacists Association. I haven't really given a lot of thought to pharmacy in my background in psychology or even in my background uh, in addiction and recovery. But I want to guarantee you that pharmacists across the country are giving a lot of attention to this. I shared this uh, 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 just about two months ago. I was invited to Salt Lake City to the University of Utah to address the American Pharmacists Association. And in particular, it was their Institute on Alcoholism and Drug Dependency. That was what they had me addressing. And next week, we have representatives from the American Pharmacists Association joining here in the studio, Austin and Odie and Dr. Bob. They're going to be joining us at a distance. They'll actually be speaking to us, I believe, from the state of Tennessee. They're part of a nationwide organization that is, is going out and addressing 
addiction in the public, going into parent-teacher associations and schools, going into churches, going in to address law enforcement agencies. So this is really taking it out to uh, organizations uh, uh, or institutions in the public, which ties in to the first question that was asked here today. And what they're doing is they're promoting a message of unshaming. Mm -hmm. They're promoting a message of, they're, they're talking very specifically about what happens in addiction in the brain, uh, what's necessary in order to resolve that, and they're extending the right hand of fellowship to all of those that are addicted and their families and loved ones to provide a way back to sobriety, a, a, a way to clean up from the addiction. And they're doing it without blaming, without, uh, without, uh, without uh, diagnosing, without, without uh, 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 incarcerating. Uh, they're, they're really addressing what can we do. And their highest priority is to address the current opioid epidemic. Uh, as you can well imagine, pharmacists are right in the crosshairs here because the medical establishment, the pharmaceutical establishment, and the pharmacists who dispense pharma pharmaceuticals are are kind of first point of contact. Mm -hmm. If somebody's if somebody's accessing opiates that they're likely to become addicted to, it typically will start mm -hmm. in a pharmacy type of situation. It may well move quickly to street drugs, and heroin is one example of that, or, il or illegally dispensed uh, uh, medications that are no longer being monitored by a physician or monitored by a, a pharmacist. But they feel great responsibility for regulating what they do for one thing, but also passing along information to the public. And the message, and I can guarantee you, because I spent nearly a week with the pharmacists in Salt Lake City, the message is one that is without shame. Yeah. And including in pharmacists, if, if in the general population, 25% of the general population is addicted to substances, if we include alcohol, nicotine, and other drugs, that statistic holds the same for pharmacists, because guess what? They're part of the normal population. Mm -hmm. The same percentage holds up in my, my discipline of psychology. Yeah. You, get the same, you get the same number of uh, addicts. And what I'm struck by in, in, in the American Pharmacists Association is an incredibly, I think it would be called tough love, they won't abide, if you're a pharmacist owner, they won't abide with your being addicted without addressing it. But they'll address it uh, very ambitiously, very aggressively in terms of getting you clean and sober as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And then and then monitoring you closely and getting you back in the workforce. And mm -hmm. so they don't send you away to jail or prison or kick you out of the pharmacy associations or the yeah. pharmacy boards. They want, to, they want to heal you, and they will, you will be accountable. So they'll do drug testing to make sure that you don't relapse. Wow. But they want to get you back into the workforce. And so it's, they have a much more detailed strategy than just what I've just shared. <laughs> but they'll be discussing, uh, be, be discussing that detail with us next week when they come. So there's one organization. There's one organization who's really addressing this. I'll get to, there's another question. I'll get to that in just a second. But I want to move to the next slide. The next slide is, is from a group that's contacted me more recently, a group called Empower Idaho. This is a state and federally funded organization in, in the state of Idaho that is very interested in um, educating the public as well. So they go into schools, uh, they, they work with moms and dads, they go into businesses, um, they go into prisons. They're, they're, they're educating the, the public writ large around addiction in the state of Idaho. They've invited me to come in uh, next month, in September, to present uh, uh, a, uh, a, a webinar that's very much in the spirit of what we do yeah. that will be going out to what they refer to as consumers. And those consumers are primarily those that themselves are struggling with active addiction 
or are in early recovery and their loved ones. Mm -hmm. So that will be part of the audience that I'll be presenting to. The, the other uh, audience will be healthcare providers. And so it'll be to all those populations. Uh, that's just, that's about a month from right now. And that's just one organization that's doing an incredibly, I mean, I'm so deeply impressed by what they're doing. And there's not a lick of, of uh, judgment or of uh, rejection going on there. They're really reaching out to help, reaching out to educate, reaching out to restore people to community. Uh, there's a distinction that they make between conventional ideas of justice, which are re referred to as retributive justice. If you do wrong, so if you're caught in your addiction, then we must punish you. So we'll send you away. Uh, that's one model. That's the typical model. In fact, 80% of those in prisons in the United States, 80% of those currently in prisons are there directly as a function of addiction. Mm -hmm. They're either were uh, caught justice. in their active addiction. If fine, you do wrong, so if you're caught in your addiction, uh, using, then we must punish you. Being high, so we'll send you away. Selling. Uh, that's one model, uh, and that's the typical model. In fact, 80% of those in prisons in the United States, 80% of those currently in prison are there directly as a function right of addiction. They either were tributive justice. If you do wrong, so if you're caught in your addiction, then they must punish you, so they send you away. Uh, that's one model, that's the typical model. In fact, 80% of those in prisons in the United States, 80% of those currently in prisons are there directly as a function of addiction. They're either contributing justice. If you do wrong, so if you're caught in your addiction, then they must punish you, so they send you away. Uh, that's one model, that's the typical model. In fact, 80% of those in prisons in the United States, 80% of those currently in prisons are there directly as a function of addiction. If you do wrong, so if you're caught in your addiction, then they must punish you, so they send you away. That's one model, that's a typical model. 80% of those in prisons in the United States, 80% of those currently in prison, are there directly as a function of Can you review the second comment for me, Austin, one more time? I want to get it right. I have a felt, uh, a kind of a sense of it, but I want to get the exact comment if you have it there. If we could once clear out shame and guilt, we're looking it up there, we get a lot of comments here. It gives us just a chance to breathe. You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a stab at it without reading it up. I'm going to miss some of the specifics is that if we can eradicate shame from the vocabulary, mm -hmm. and I don't mean just the words we use, but also the underlying emotions that are attached to those words, if we can once eradicate those from our vocabulary, we're going to take a massive step towards healing. This is the person who said it. Thank you, Austin. I once had a psychiatrist who said, if you could eradicate guilt and shame for the world, you could release most of his patients. Well, I think I would add to that you could release most of those that are now incarcerated mm -hmm. if we can find a way. And I don't want to go soft on crime. I'm not suggesting it at all. In fact, it feels like going soft on crime to not treat the causes mm -hmm. of it. That feels like that's, that feels soft to me. We just punish it. It's like a surface level intervention. There will be no change if you don't address this deeper yeah. level. So we're talking about a deeper level intervention. Now, there was a question before. How long does the brain heal after long-term opiate abuse? 
That's a very good question. I get asked that question almost weekly in the work that I do at the local treatment center. Uh, my answer uh, that I give to the young men and women I work with is that it depends a lot. You're gonna, I, I, I'm gonna stay with this question. It depends a lot on your brain biology, it depends upon the extent of your use, the history, how long you've used. Mm -hmm. It depends on how uh, the uh, intensity of the addiction in terms of how much you've used. It depends a lot on your genetics. Um, uh, depends on the purity of the drug. We can go down a long list of contingencies. I will say this much, and it's implied in earlier, um, it's not implied, it's actually stated in earlier podcasts where we've talked about what's referred to as post-acute withdrawal syndrome, or for short, PAWS, P-A-W-S, is that PAWS or post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which arises once I'm off of my the drug I've been addicted to, which may take a week or two or three to get actually get my body back to kind of a set point where I'm no longer dominated by the drug. I will go through months and months and months of other symptoms mm -hmm. and it's no longer direct withdrawal from the substance. Mm -hmm. It's just my brain is adjusting to having been out of balance for that long. Mm -hmm. And that can take typically months, in some cases, to a year or two. Mm -hmm. I know of one individual, somebody who I know who's an interventionist and has written a book about his experience. He was severely addicted to opiates for years, a very high amount of opiates, and it took him about two years to get to back to where he was regulated enough so that he could count reliably on his emotional uh, stability day in, day out, and could do things like sleep. He wasn't able to sleep normally for about a couple of years. That's on the far end. I also work with clients that have stabilized within six months. But there's a period of time in there, it's deceptive, because there's a period of time in there where you look like you're just fine. Well, Bob's no longer drinking or doing drugs, so he should be just fine. But Bob's brain is still healing, and that process uh, takes as long as it takes us, which is why I think that self-help support groups and continuing therapy, coaching, et cetera, are really uh, important in the early months of, of uh, addiction recovery. I hope that helps. That I think it's an important question. Hang on for just a second. I think it's an important question in the context of our talking about shame because what will happen oftentimes early in recovery, people will look at somebody's behavior, they'll look at it as erratic, and they'll go, you're not serious about your recovery. You're still using, aren't you? You're still mm -hmm. acting on addictive behaviors. That might be the case, but oftentimes it's not the case. So it can be very helpful to educate caregivers, uh, loved ones of the, the individual who's in recovery of what's going on so that they don't pour salt on the open wound that's still healing. Mm -hmm. That shame may send somebody back into relapse a, the shame is not helpful. B, it's not accurate because mm -hmm. the person may well be going through post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Yes, sir, what right. were you going to say? I was just going to ask, if that's for substance abuse, then yes. uh, does the same apply yes. for behavior? Yes, it does. The I'm same answer. Thank you. I, you know, it's yeah. funny. I was thinking of that as I was talking, and then we began to ask question. I'm glad you asked that. Absolutely. If what we said earlier is that the brain is set around such substances as dopamine, mm. serotonin, which we haven't talked right. much about here, glutamate, uh, and other neurotransmitters, insofar as that those are activated by any addiction, mm -hmm. it stands to reason, doesn't it, that it's going to take my brain uh, a while to adjust, no matter yeah. what it is, whether the whether the trigger for my addiction is a is a substance or a behavior. Mm -hmm. In all cases, my brain has been bathing in a certain kind of chemical balance, and it needs to rebalance mm -hmm. to be back to normal. And this is why the early weeks and months of recovery from any kind of addiction, those are the riskiest because our brain wants to go back to what it's right. familiar with. Yeah. So when cortisol rises up in the way we've talked about it today, when stress rises up, it's gonna be 
Time me to the math so I don't act out my, my, my response because my right. antidote, which is oftentimes very well developed, is reflexively to move towards the source of my comfort, mm. which would be the addictive behavior or substance. And so it takes as long as it takes. I think it's also implied in what I said, like the friend of mine who took two years to recover from opiate addiction, he had advanced brain biology changed by that. Mm -hmm. The miracle of it is that our brains are, refer it's referred to as neuroplasticity, which mm -hmm. is our brains are flexible. Yeah. They will most often heal. It just, we have to be patient with that process and we have to be really committed to solid sobriety, mm -hmm. to stay clean during that time, whatever the addiction. But the, you, the good news is that the rich get richer, is that early in recovery, as your brain gets to, begins to get clear of the substance or of the behavior, mm -hmm. you can begin to fill some solid ground. Right. You can fill it almost immediately. Yeah. And each week that you're able to maintain clean, being clean from your addiction is like solid ground foundation underneath you. And so you can, you can look at this. I actually work with clients on this where I help them. We just, we just check out how they're doing compared to last week. And then with a little bit more time to last month, and you can begin to chart behavioral changes, mm -hmm. emotional changes, attitude changes, and they're concrete and they come with increased sobriety. The strongest predictor of extended, sustained recovery mm -hmm. is sobriety. <laughs> Each week I get under my belt with sobriety, you get this kind of exponential curve, yeah. much more likely to, to, to stay sober. Um, uh, it doesn't feel like that at the beginning, but we really do. Strength builds upon strength. Uh, yeah, that reminds me of a quick story. Um, I'm ready for a quick story. Uh, later friend, on. <laughs> a friend of mine came to visit a while back, and uh, he's uh, he lives really healthy, so he works out, he eats right, mm -hmm. and uh, he felt like having uh, one of those um, what are they like a popsicle. But mm -hmm. they're ones that like you squeeze out and it's made out of ice or whatever. But it's really high on sugar, mm -hmm. and it was hot out, so he just said, "You yeah, know, whatever. I, I don't want any other ice cream. I just I'm gonna try this." So he ate the whole thing, and then about like, or like 30 minutes later, he he was knocked out. He fell asleep, but because of the high sugar intake, you know, because he's not used to the intake of sugar, so. I don't know. What you were saying reminded me of that. So. You know, you raise an interesting point here. It's a good point, which is that once, like with your friend who lives, he lives a healthy lifestyle, it sounds mm -hmm. like, is that once you get your brain back to, I had one uh, psychiatrist I worked with who called it your birthday brain. Mm -hmm. Once we get back to our birthday brain, which is our kind of natural baseline, yeah. then when you introduce an addictive substance like advanced amounts of sugar in this case, <laughs> or whatever behaviors we've used in the past or whatever uh, uh, substances we've used, our bodies react to it so much more strongly because it's mm. no longer our set point. We have yeah. a new set point. In fact, one of the risks uh, for individuals who uh, uh, have been addicted, for, for example, to an opiate, which uh, you know, there are people I've worked with that have used amount of opiates that if somebody off the street were to use them, it would kill them. Mm. I say it would wow. kill a horse. Yeah. Well, they'll get off of opiates, and then if they relapse, if they relapse and go back to the same level they were at, where their brains had what's called tolerance, mm -hmm. in other words, the brain wasn't reacting to it like a normal brain. It's a brain right. that's built up its resistance to the effect of the substance. Mm -hmm. They'll take that same amount, and it will kill them. 
Wow. And so I have any number of clients that have died as a function of relapse to the previous level. Thankfully, popsicles probably won't kill you. Yeah. It depends on, I guess, how sweet they are. <laughs> but it sounds like they nearly knocked this guy. Well, they did literally knocked they this guy out. And I think it's, yeah. a, I think it's a, again, if we're talking about addiction, whether it's to sugar or to opiates or any other substance or any other behavior, if addiction is addiction is addiction, yeah. then once I get myself back to my baseline, then I'm going to be far more sensitive to the effect of it yeah. and uh, all the more reason to be careful about it. It also gives you an idea of how we build up a resistance or a tolerance to things where when we're actually cleared out and are exposed to it, if I, ha if I was addicted to sugar, mm -hmm. I guarantee you that a popsicle wouldn't do anything. Right. You know, maybe a case of popsicles wouldn't do anything. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it gives you an idea how it goes with addiction is that once I get back to my natural baseline mm -hmm. and I'm exposed to that again, it's like, well, Lordy mercy, what was I immersing myself right. in? Yeah. What was I bathing my brain in? Mm -hmm. Whatever the substance was, including sugar. Yeah. I think it's a great story. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, we're winding up for today. We've done kind of a quick overview of so much of what we've covered. I think the piece that we've added today, and it really is meant as a bridge to the next couple of weeks conversations, is we've introduced what are the implications of what we're talking about on a personal level? What are the implications societally, socially, in terms of institutions? And I love both of the earlier questions that came in because they both address this in terms of, it would put psychiatrists out of business is what the one psychiatrist said, <laughs> and it, would, it could very well transform our society. Um, uh, in terms of, of organizations. You know, I mentioned something today. I'd be curious to uh, compare notes with you. I mentioned it in one of, the, one of the groups that I was in earlier today where I, uh, we were talking uh, in, the, in the group at the treatment center and we were talking about the incredible blessing it is to be in a group where people can be transparent about their addictions. Mm -hmm. And I asked the question, I said, I want to ask you guys, uh, this is all men, I want to ask you guys, where else in your life can you go and be this transparent about your addictions? These are individuals that have all been addicted, seriously addicted to serious drugs. Mm -hmm. And I said, can you go to a church? Can you go to a club, a church club, I mean, to a civic club? Can you go to your family? Can you go to a family reunion? Mm -hmm. We just went down a list. And there are exceptions to that, but it's the rare circumstance yeah. where you can go to any uh, typical institution or organization right down to your extended family and share about your addiction. Most people aren't as gutsy as you, Odie, to put up your story on Facebook. I did the same thing. Yeah. I did the same thing. I wrote a lengthy Facebook post called Living Amends, and I posted it on Facebook. It's now on my website, but I posted it, and it was the same intention as you. I yeah. wanted people to know my story uh, related to addiction, and I wanted that to serve Help, hopefully as encouragement to others that they would share. I will say this much as I had tons of people respond mm -hmm. online through Facebook, yeah. encouragement, including sharing their own story. And now that it's on my, uh, on my website, uh, I have people respond to that as well. It's one of the most uh, riskiest things I've ever done because it wasn't so long ago that there's no way on heaven or earth that I would do that. <laughs> and I did that and you did the same thing. I yeah. totally honored that. So there are ways that we can begin to be leavening influences out in society by, yeah. by having these kinds of conversations. Absolutely. Come back next week. We'll have, we'll have the guests from the American Pharmacists Association. Really looking forward to that next week. The following week, we'll have another local guest who's agreed to join, and I'll, I'll uh, give you more of the topic of that when we get closer to that in, a, in another week or so. Uh, are there any final comments or questions today from anybody? If not, Austin is saying, shaking his head, if not, 
Uh, you can write to me. The next slide gives you, you can write to me directly. I mentioned my website. There's a, you can contact me directly through my website. Just There's a place you can email me there. It goes directly to my email and I'll respond to you. I also want to encourage you to write in questions or responses to our Facebook group, Ask an Addiction Specialist. Austin is the moderator of that. He'll forward questions to Odie and me. You can also go to uh, our YouTube uh, uh, channel with our Ask an Addiction Specialist podcast, the whole archive there, and you can write comments there and Austin will also alert us to that. So there are multiple ways to get a hold of us. And while I'm mentioning it, you can also go to Beginnings Treatment Centers, and this is a shout out to Beginnings Treatment Centers here locally who do such a fantastic job of they're really doing what we talked about. I talked about what's happening in Idaho and what, what's happening in Tennessee and in the nation. It's happening locally here with treatment centers like Beginnings who are really dedicated to informing the public about, uh, about healing of addiction, healing of shame, uh, in service of uh, sustained and successful recovery. So many thanks to Beginnings. Thank you all for joining us this week. Thank you, Odie. Thank you. Thank you, Austin. Thank it's great. you, Austin. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate you all being here. Come back next week and join us with the American Farmers Association. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you all. Take care and have a good week.